Before we get started, just a quick content warning. There is some strong language used in this episode. I think the biggest surprise that you get when you've got a release date, you're working with a studio, Universal Blumhouse, is the fact that if you write something on that page, it's really going to happen. And you can imagine a lot of things that you couldn't have if you had like no budget, like I was doing, you know, for so many years of just like hanging out with my friends making shorts. It just felt like there was so much opportunity. But at the same time, reality steps in. And reality is just like such a bummer. And so that means that like your budget just got lowered by a million dollars. That means that you need to cut out half of this and you need to rewrite all of it right now. We're gonna shoot it next week, so you should figure that out. At that point, I think that being a journalist actually came in handy because I had had years of people just red inking whole paragraphs of everything that I wrote and saying like, rewrite this, not good enough, not good enough. And you get a really thick skin with those kinds of deadlines and with that kind of feedback and journalism. So then you get to the studio system and like all of a sudden someone that you've never heard of comes in and like, oh, they finally read it and they have notes now. And you're just like, where are these notes coming from? Who are these people? And it's coming at you from all places, but you just have to juggle everything. I'm John Frechette and welcome to Best Laid Plans, the podcast that speaks to successful creatives in various industries about the moments in their careers when they had to pivot, compromise, or make a comeback when things didn't go as planned. Back when she was pursuing her master's degree in writing, a professor cautioned screenwriter and former film critic April Wolf that the road to any degree of success would be a long and difficult one. For April, that meant hundreds of cover letters and countless interviews before a dream opportunity as the lead film critic of LA Weekly charted a new path for her, though perhaps not in the way one might expect. As the creator and host of the podcast Switchblade Sisters, April unpacked how and why genre films were made and forged a like-minded community of female filmmakers that would ultimately lead her back to her first passion, screenwriting, and the chance to hurdle past the years of studio development most emerging writers endure to work on a film with a stringent release date. In this episode, April traces her path from Grand Rapids, Michigan to Los Angeles, speaks to the challenges of balancing her passion for screenwriting with the demands of writing professionally as a critic, the importance of listening to one's intuition and seizing on unexpected opportunities, and how a tenaciousness forged by years of struggle led a working class writer to finally come out from the cold and be welcomed as a Hollywood insider. Now, here's April with her story. When I was a kid, I didn't grow up in a household that really cared anything about reading or writing or art. I think like the closest that we got to like educational television was watching Wheel of Fortune. So I ended up teaching myself to read when I was a kid. And then I think that that was about the time where my family was like, oh, I think that she's different. Even when I was in high school, I was the weirdo who was like writing plays and forcing my classmates who really didn't care about me at all to like perform the plays that I wrote. I was just like a total weirdo who kind of couldn't be controlled. 
My grandparents raised me predominantly when I was younger, and they owned and operated a neighborhood bar back in Michigan. So we were on their schedule. Even though we were in school, we were up until like two in the morning because that's bar close. It was a really weird thing where we ended up having to kill a lot of time at night, and so we watched a lot of horror movies. And we always went down to the local Rite Aid where you could rent uh, VHS at the time, and we had gotten a, a VHS player. And so it was like a godsend for us. We were just watching every horror movie that ever came out. I remember April Fool's Day was one that I had an affinity for because it has my name in it. And I would sit on my grandma's lap and my uh, older sister would sit with my grandpa on the couch and they would periodically pull covers up over our faces at times when they thought that there should be censoring. But they were often so scared that they would forget to pull the covers up. And so we were just like <laughs> seeing all of these very, very adult movies, probably way too young. So I went to college and I was the first in my family to go and I was just like, I'm just going to do it. I'm gonna take out loans and see what the hell happens. And so I went and I was you know, coming from this background where your goal is to make money and to make money as fast as possible. I also just didn't understand professions. And so I was just like, oh, I'm interested in psychology. So maybe I'll like major in psychology. And so I did that also not knowing that you would have to go to school for like a decade to you know, earn any money from it. And then in my psychology classes, my professors kept telling me that all of my papers felt like I was writing short fiction. And I was like, what? Like, you can just study writing? I went to one of the most mediocre state schools, Western Michigan University. You kind of have to understand what Michigan was like at the time that I went to school because we had felt the financial crashes earlier than anyone else. We had been mismanaged. The state was just totally in the tank. And the only jobs that I could get in Kalamazoo or Grand Rapids was like selling knives door to door or waiting tables. And I had done both and I didn't want to do it anymore. And I had done quite a bit of traveling when I was in college because I was in this women's performance wrestling troupe where I played a character and we were wrestlers and we toured around the US in this rock and wrestle league beating the shit out of our opponents. And so I had seen so much of uh, the country through that and was just like, I have to get out. I decided to move out to LA, not even just to be a writer because I really did not fully believe that you could be a writer for a living. I just moved out to LA because it is sunny and I had some family out here. And again, it was very sunny. <laughs> When I moved out to LA, I was actually like really worried about getting a job. I was just like applying to anything that was on Craigslist. And there were actually some like quote unquote editor jobs. And there was one at this art publishing company called Workbook. And I got hired immediately. And the reason they said that they hired me is because I was Midwestern and they knew that I would work harder than other people. <laughs> they didn't want to hire a local candidate. I thought that was really funny. I was just like, oh, I, there's an asset. I was still like kind of writing short fiction in my free time, but you also didn't have a lot of free time. It was a tough thing where I just entered the workforce and had to work late, come home, make dinner, go to bed. It was like this weird nine to five life that I'd never had before. 
about a year and a half in of living in LA, I think I went through a really, really terrible depression and just said like, I'm just not gonna write. I'm just gonna maybe work at this place and try to like work my way up to become like a senior editor or something. It's about that time where my car started doing really weird things. Weird things kept happening all around me, like things I can't even explain. Like all of a sudden I would just be like sitting in traffic and the gas pedal would just start going down and I would have to like pull on the emergency brake because I was like, what is happening? Like my computer died, everything that I touched just like turned to shit and I felt like I was losing my mind. And then at some point in time, I just had a dream of a map with a star over Boise, Idaho. And then so I, I typed in Boise creative writing when I got to work the next morning. And it was just like, oh, there's a new MFA program in fiction writing. And it's free and there's a full ride. You get to teach and they give you a stipend. They will pay you to come there. And I was just like, oh, that's weird. So I printed off some of my samples and just wrote like a quick thing and sent it in. And then like three months later, I get a call and they're like, hey, we want to offer you a full ride and a stipend to teach here. And I was just like, what the fuck? And I picked up everything and moved to Boise, Idaho to just take three years out and write and teach creative writing. Three years to just write in this beautiful place was something where I'm, I'm grateful for that every day. One of my favorite professors, he had like five kids and he was always writing. And he was just like, you need to learn how to write when other people are around. You will never have your precious time. You will never have like the exact right moment. You just need to get up every single day and like figure out how to do it. I took so much away from that. At some point in time, I think I woke up one day and was just like, I think I have to move back to LA. I have to do this. I'm going to apply to film school and I'm going to see if I can do it. And so a friend of mine came over and loaded up her car and then just drove me down to LA and I just had nothing. <laughs> and I was like, let's see what happens. So I applied to film schools and I got in. And the one that I was thinking about going to the most is Cal Arts. And I went up there and I was interested in finding out ways where they could help me pay for school. And it was probably the most crushing experience that I've had because I was just like, well, what kind of financial aid is there? A woman actually responded to me, oh, well, we had one student last year who went into sex work to pay for school. That's an option. And I thought I was losing my mind because you had to be rich, I found out, to go to film school. And I just ended up not going. And I decided that I was going to take whatever money I would have spent on like applications or anything else and just make a bunch of short films with my friends. And I was just going to fail on my own and, and see what happened. Through all of this, I was working as a journalist because I was doing a million jobs at the same time. I think when I tell people, you know, like, oh, I did this, I did this, I did this, a lot of people think I'm in like my 50s or something, but it's just because I've had so many jobs simultaneously. 
a friend of mine sends me an email and it says, hey, I know that you've been looking for a job for your entire life. Here is a listing for a film critic position at LA Weekly. And at that point in time, I had written so many cover letters that I was an expert. I could get any job that I wanted just because I had done so much in my life to figure out how to sell myself. And I was just like, I'm just gonna apply to it because I apply to 20 jobs a day. So like, why not? Six months later, I get a call <laughs> and they're like, hey, do you have time for coffee? And I was just like, who is this? <laughs> they were like, this is LA Weekly. And I was like, what? I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes, but apparently they had been vetting me without my knowledge, reading a lot of my work. And it was such a strange thing where I came in and they were just like, well, um, what do you expect to make in this position? And I was just like, I don't, I don't, I was always looking for a job. So then someone was like about to offer me a job. It didn't make any sense. And also offer me a film critic job because people do that. They can just write about movies and, and you make money. It's insane. And so they set me up with my editor who was at Village Voice, Alan Schurstall, who's one of the best editors in the world. And he gave me a month-long crash course of how to be a film critic. The first thing I got was like a three-page list of do's and don'ts. And then he gave me two movies to review. And if I was able to review those on the caliber of someone who writes for Village Voice, then I was allowed to be the film critic. And so I did two movies and I passed the test and I got the job. When I became a film critic, my screenwriting, I kind of put on hold, mostly because the job was that demanding. Because if you're not going to screenings in the evening, you're finishing up a review to hit the embargo date. It was just an, an all-consuming, you know, salaried job. but. I think that I was like wondering if the pain of wanting to be a screenwriter was worth it at that time. Because I'd seen a lot of my friends kind of flounder and they were, they were people who had film degrees. Like they studied it and I came from a working class background and all of a sudden I had like the safety net of this job being a critic and I was just like, well, would it be so bad if I gave up on the stream and I just went for this other thing that so many other people have as their dream. You know, like, I should be grateful for this. But the thing is, I always wanted to make movies. I always wanted to write. And I think that there became a kind of deep sadness in me because I was watching other people's things. And sometimes I would get so inspired. And other times I would be like, why did they get money? Like, why did they get this opportunity? And it was just kind of like this constant struggle of feeling bitter, feeling grateful, not feeling grateful. And I didn't know how to kind of work with that. But, you know, unbeknownst to me, LA Weekly was going to be bought out by a bunch of right-wing idiots. And that changed my life in a way where it is terrible for the paper, but it forced me out of a kind of comfort zone that I had because I probably would have just continued not writing. But I didn't have that safety net all of a sudden. I didn't, I didn't have a future ahead of me. And for me, something happened where that desperation actually clicked into creative success. That desperation led me to write, I think, like six features within a very short amount of time. And features that, like, for the first time, I was just like, oh, 
I finally get what I'm doing. So I took that chance that every writer like makes their stomach drop and that's just showing it to people and being ready for rejection. And so I started showing it to some friends of mine who were producers, who I met because I was a film critic going to like Fantastic Fest in Austin. And I got really positive feedback. And they were like, wait, you're a screenwriter? (laughs) And I was like, funny you should ask, yes. Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director. I started my podcast, Switchblade Sisters, because I wanted a way to talk about film craft and process in a way that I was making my own film school. It's, I think, one of the few podcasts that is specifically geared towards dissecting how something is made for a full hour instead of just kind of talking about why it's made or what it is. And then Sophia Takal called me and she had been a guest on my podcast and we hit it off because she's so deeply weird in a genuine way. And she had a movie coming out for Blumhouse's Into the Dark series. And she had asked their publicist to send me an invitation to go and see an early cut of it at the Blumhouse offices. I was just like, oh, she probably just kind of thinks that I'm like a critic and she wants me to like give her a good review or something. So I kept my distance. And then she like sat down next to me and like grabbed my hand. I was just like, I'm so happy to see you. And like such a genuine way. And I was just like, oh, are we friends? I ended up sending her a script that I had written. I was like, I think that maybe you could direct this. And it was like the biggest chance that I could have taken. I love Sophia's work. I think that she's just such a fantastic artist. And she got back to me and said like, I read it all, I wanna direct it. And I was just like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like all of a sudden there was someone who cared. And of course working in, in this industry, you don't believe it until it happens. But still it was like this glimmer of hope of like, I can't believe that this person wants to do this. And she seems very serious. And then she said, I can't do this right now, though, because Blumhouse wants me to make this other movie. And then Sophia sends me an email and says, can I get some notes on this? So I sent her some notes. And the way that I treated all of my fiction writing students at Boise State is you never try to guide them in any direction, but you always ask so many questions to expand their thinking on things that might not be working. So I just asked her, I think, like two pages of questions. I'm just like, what if this? What if that? What are you thinking with this? And from that, she responded, do you want to write this with me? And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, it, and it was Black Christmas. I think when Sophia told me that the project that she was doing is Black Christmas, it was kind of a, a rush of memories for me because Black Christmas is one of those movies that we watched on VHS when I was a kid with my grandparents. You know, this is something that I was very familiar with. And there's a reason why it's held up and why some other slashers that came after it who kept trying to imitate it just never got it right. And I found through working with Sophia that we didn't want to imitate the original. So I think the way that we decided to approach it is to pretend it didn't even have the name Black Christmas and to try to make something that felt of the time and hopefully ahead of its time. 
we had a little bit of freedom in the way that we worked with Blumhouse because the timeline was so constrained. I don't think that they made a film on that type of timeline before. We were given the project in late spring and had to shoot it in summer and it needed to be in theaters by December 13th. So that meant a very, very constrained timeline for writing, directing, reshoots, editing, all of that. And because there was such a panic and because they had already reserved the December 13th, it was Friday the 13th, that meant that like we could get away with some stuff that normally they maybe wouldn't let people get away with. So it felt like we were kind of sneaking things in, specifically in terms of like content that we thought would appeal to some women. And for what we were able to accomplish in such a short amount of time with such a tiny budget in a different country where everything was so much more expensive, it's just kind of breathtaking. It's great, all the stuff happens, and then I still couldn't see like what a future would be. I got this one movie, but like, what's the future after this? And then you've got people telling you that if it doesn't do well, then you don't have a future after this. Oh, and also because you're a woman, it's gonna be a lot harder too, especially if it doesn't do well. And you're like, oh, great. You know, I remember sitting in my apartment, there's a billboard, a fucking giant billboard <laughs> for my movie that's just like right down the street, that's right there. And then I'm just like, wow, okay, I still live in this shitty one bedroom apartment with my husband and our two cats. Nothing felt real. It never felt real. Like for the press day, you'd get whisked around to all these journalists and they'd like force you to sit in the seat for like an hour under hot lights where makeup is just melting your face, asking you the same questions over and over. And for me, I was like, I was in your seat <laughs> like three months ago. <laughs> now you're asking me these things and I wanna be the one who's asking me these things. I don't like your questions. It's a really kind of disillusioning experience of like what you kind of want your career to be. But I think I was really lucky in that I didn't have representation when I went into Black Christmas. Sophia's agents and manager just kind of wrote me into her contract. So when the movie was about to come out, I got a call from XYZ Films, which is a company that I loved. You know, they'd put out The Raid, they'd just done Mandy. And so a guy named Peter Van Steenberg told me that they were making a management side to the company. And they were curious if I would be interested in being signed. And I was just like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> like, that's amazing. I was so used to kind of hustling myself. And after the movie came out, I had real support with Peter and XYZ in a way that I didn't know before ever in my life. There was someone who was emailing me who's saying like, what's next? What's the plan? And who was just like, send me all your scripts. And by that time, you know, like when I was done with Black Christmas, I had written four other scripts, but like having someone there who's just like, I'm gonna read every single thing that you write and I'm gonna tell you like what can be done with it, what should be done with it, that changed everything. And I, I just feel like it's something that I've been looking for my entire life and I finally found it. I don't know if I'm successful. I think that maybe if I put myself in the shoes of the wolf who came out here in 2004, yes. You know, I think that she would look at who I am right now and say that, like, you're successful, but also I'm disappointed, you know, <laughs> probably like looking at like my apartment and my credit card bills and, and these things are just like, maybe just a little bit kind of confused about what success is. But I'm also lucky. I understand how lucky I am. I know that I've worked hard. 
but I know other people who work just as hard as me because of my podcast. I have a kind of visible presence on social media. I get a lot of young people, a lot of people who want to be filmmakers who listen to the show because it is essentially like master classes of how something is made and, and how you can accomplish it yourself. And I have a hard time telling them how difficult it is. I have probably a lot of PTSD from all the times where I couldn't make my credit card bill and where I just didn't eat for a week and where, you know, I was just like crying and begging for someone to give me a ride, where my bike tire went flat and I didn't have a car and I was like trying to carry cat litter home on my back on a, on a bike that is broken and just being like, why am I here? What am I doing? Like, what? this is too hard. It's hard to tell people that it's gonna be that hard. And it's going to be that hard for a long time, you know, because there were days where I would wake up and I would say, like, I can't take one more day of this. Another year goes by. I can't take one more day of this. Another year goes by. I can't take one more day of this. And then you just keep taking it because what else are you going to do? And there's also this thing that I, I like to reference that I used to tell my students at Boise State. And it's something that, that found its way into a lot of fiction writing MFAs. These teachers would have a hard time telling these people who got into an MFA, which is already hard enough, that it was going to take, on average, probably at least another 10 years before you get to any kind of success. And so they called that the 10 years out in the cold. And I will be honest with you, from my graduation of uh, my MFA to when Black Christmas came out, 10 years exactly. 10 years exactly. And it was so hard. <laughs> it was the hardest times I've ever had in my life and it made me stronger. It made me kind of refine what I wanted to do and that I did need to do it, that it wasn't just something that like was a passing interest, that it, it, it is the thing that drives me the most. But 10 years out in the cold, if you can take 10 years out in the cold, you know, you can do anything. Be sure to check out April's work on Black Christmas, available on multiple VOD platforms, or her now-defunct podcast, Switchblade Sisters, still a wealth of information and insight. Best Laid Plans is produced by Todd Luoto and myself. Music for this episode is by John Frechette and Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork by Tim Ahern. Find us on the web at bestlaidpod.com, and if you like what you heard, consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks for listening.